right. Okay. Welcome to the Thereafter Podcast, a place where we explore life on the other side of faith change. We're here to break down the binaries, deconstruct the dualities, and wander through what it looks like to live in the gray. In church, we were told that life after leaving would be a bitter wasteland of unfulfilling hedonism, but we've discovered quite the opposite. There's actually a vibrant community of people on the other side of faith who are finding and co-creating space for hope and healing. Come along as we explore the all too often uncharted expanse of evangelicalism, evolving faith, and the life thereafter. Are you Megan? Yeah, I'm good. You know, it's a Monday. It, we usually record these in the afternoon. I've had, you know, a, a lot of caffeine, and right now it's 10 a.m. and I'm having my first cup of tea. So oh, here we are. I've had a lot of coffee already today. I'm, I've been working from home today, and uh, I, yeah, I, I, that means that I'm like right next to my coffee pot versus having to wait, like get up and go to a, the break room. So I've had extra caffeine today. <laughs> Might yeah, be on, like, I don't... the verge of jittery. <laughs> Caffeine's something that there was a moment in my life where I gave it up for like six weeks, and then I'm like, no, I, I, I think I'm just gonna embrace caffeine. And I, 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 I don't it. drink coffee; I drink tea. But still, I, I, yeah, I need that kick. Yep, yep. Well, we have things to talk about before we get into the interview today. Uh, excited about the interview, but yeah, let's let's do twitbits. Oh, I think we might have to talk about Greg Locke. <laughs> I think I think there's a place here to talk about Greg Locke um, because I, if you if you're not familiar, we'll give background. Greg Locke is a crazy person. He is uh, been kicked off of Twitter uh, for oh, I did not the know amount this. of crazy. Yeah, he has no Twitter, so you can't find him on Twitter um, because. Um, just like our, uh, you know, beloved president Trump, uh, he, he had shall a... not be named Cortland. <laughs> <I don't... laughs> he had a propensity for sharing, uh, all types of misinformation on Twitter. Uh, and he is a pastor, uh, global vision, something or other in Nashville. Um, he, He's a wild card. He's he is he is just really, really, really out there. Um, and yet he has a a platform and a lot of people who validate and and listen to him. He has a fairly large church. He's not like there's some of those people that regularly pop up doing these sermons saying these really crazy things and there's like 12 people in their church you know right and, and they're kind of like their family yeah, members yeah yeah fred phelps is a classic right. example you know when he was alive you know westboro baptist church was very tiny very uh locally influential but got lots of media attention because of how how crazy um greg Locke, i mean recently did an event with sean foyt uh you know yeah <laughs> you know which you know, even though I think Sean Foyt is is radical and extreme and kind of nuts, um, or really nuts, uh, he has broad 
nationwide appeal and and a lot of people who are listening um, to to him. So so I think that's why it's important to talk about Greg Locke in distinction from maybe some other smaller, crazier folks who are looking to amplify their platform by being extra crazy. Uh, Greg Locke is doing that, but also has a significant platform um, and a significant amount of people who are going to listen to him and going to hear what he says and take it seriously. Um, so he's done a, a, a ton of crazy things. Um, a few weeks ago, uh, he did a, a large book burning at uh, the church. His church meets in a big tent. Uh, and so they, you know, finished up the service, a two hour sermon or three hour sermon. The guy gives really long, uh, insane sermons. Um, and then they all went out to the parking lot where they lit a huge fire and had, uh, uh, people from the church bring books, uh, specifically, um, talking about, uh, uh, magic and witchcraft and, you know, uh, dark forces was kind of the the whole idea is uh, hyping up this idea of we're going to burn these books that are perpetuating ideas around dark demonic forces and in Greg Locke's opinion witchcraft uh, and and then subsequent to that a couple weeks later which was this last week he he got on stage and and was terrifyingly uh, addressing witches that had been brought to his attention by somebody possibly uh, uh the holy spirit or god or you know something brought to his attention the names of these witches who were within his church and he uh aggressively you can go watch the video it's very easy to find um aggressively calls these women out um and says you know two of them i see here in the audience today um, and we're going to find you out. We have your first name. We have your last name. We have your address. I mean, it honestly feels criminal, like the and level of end? intimidation. Like, right, exactly. To burn them, I'm guessing, to like, to, to rally them up and burn them at the stake, you know, is, is kind of the, 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 the feeling and the energy. I don't know that he said that specifically, but you hold a bonfire to burn books and then you address these witches that you know who they are and you're coming for them and they can't hide and you know where they live um along with this very violent language it feels like you know uh it's inciting violence it's inciting uh uh terror um and creating a really, like I said, criminal, I think unsafe environment of intimidation. <laughs> yeah. That that just feels like I don't even know how this is legal, much less Christian. <laughs> well, and <laughs> or, what's always or, wild to me is that he has a following. And that I mean, it's like, okay, it it doesn't surprise me that there are Greg Locks out there. It doesn't surprise me that there are John Pipers out there, you know, and that there are these extremists. But what surprises me is when you do a deep dive and you see the people that come out and they're like, yes, preach. And you're like, no, this is really harmful. And can you not see this just watching it? What I mean, how much do we need to unpack for you to understand that this is so awful? So, I mean, I think that's where I get, I, like you said, it's it's like it's not like he's this niche niche pastor, but he has a following. 
Yeah. Yeah. And he's tapped into, you know, this, this like very pro Trump anti-vax audience, um, and, uh, has created this, you know, group of people around him who are like, yeah, he just, he's calling people out. He's saying how it is. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's very similar. I know you said, don't say his name, but like, it's very similar to Trump. It's very (laughs) similar to the tactics of, of, you know, people, you know, who, I don't know. I don't, I don't quite get the entire like psychology of how people can justify, um, this, but there is, obviously some type of psychological thing that's happening in the minds of the people who are rallying around these people that, that they feel disempowered or they feel, uh, silenced or they feel some way that inclines them to attach themselves to people like this, who in their mind are being brave um, being brazen, I mean, being, uh, you know, voices in the wilderness, there's this, this, uh, and, and I think that that emotional appeal really does cloud people's common sense to go like, oh, this is, you know, I, it's amazing to me looking from the outside, but this is, this is really, really fucked up. This is really, damaging, harmful, gross, you know, uh, rhetoric that's being spouted. Um, but it does, I guess, just like remind me of people who get sucked into white supremacy movements, people who get sucked into the incel movement, people who get sucked into any of these radical extremist types of movements. Um, there's got to be something psychologically that's happening that's allowing them to slowly be just lulled into supporting this kind of thing, you know, <laughs> and it's yeah, terrifying and- how many people are there in our country. And the flip side is the they say these things that they claim are bold and truth. And then when they get pushed back, they claim it's persecution. It's the, it's the never ending spiral of the Christian persecution cycle. Right. And Mm -hmm. historically it's, it's so interesting. I'm reading white evangelical racism right now. And it's talking about, you know, how evangelicals really held on to the notions of slavery and used a biblical basis for that and, and things like that. And historically it's so, it's such a mindfuck to me that you've got these, these things that society starts to say are bad and evangelicals say, no, we're holding on to them. And so you think about that with racism and slavery. You think about that with patriarchy. You think about that with um, queer liberation where society starts to say, hold on, let's, let's take a wider look at this and realize the harm that's been happening. And evangelicals are like, no, 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 we don't want to get caught up in culture. We want to hold on to these things. And I think it's just such a mindfuck that it's like, actually the thing that you're holding on to is quite damaging and quite harmful. And they're so set on it that they don't want to be shifted. And the people supporting Greg, the Greg locks are like, thank you for putting your feet down firmly and not being swayed by the culture. And you're like, I, I actually think being swayed by the culture would benefit you quite a great deal. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I so this reminds me of a tweet that I had this last week because um, I tweeted out or a screen capture from some guy named Matt who's a pastor who had this hot take on God running hell. And he's like, we, you know, Christians forget that Satan doesn't run hell. God runs hell. God's in charge of hell, um, yada, yada, you know. And and Jared replied back to me, uh, you know, friend of the show on Twitter and, and was like, yeah, this this even though this take feels kind of gross it it feels a little bit maybe more honest than yeah uh a lot of christians who kind of have this uh well god you know god doesn't send people to hell people you know god saves people from hell and people choose to go to hell and and god's not sending them in there and this guy was like yeah god's burning people you know <laughs> like yeah. like yeah. he was taking it to its logical conclusion and i think that that when i look at the theology that I grew up in, it's, it's easy. It was easy for me to not think of it as radical or as extreme or as harmful because it was cloaked in a lot of less abrasive, less brazen, uh, less extreme language. But when you really boil it down, the theology I was taught was that those who are not following Christ, those who are not saved uh, uh, and the appropriate kind of Christian are in fact serving Satan and are servants of the dark demonic force of the world. And that theology, when really boiled down, does justify this type of rhetoric, this right. type of like, if, you know, if you really believe that people who are not Christians, I, m myself, right. If my, my, my family, my dad believes I am a servant of Satan and I have been, uh, 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 co-opted by dark and evil forces you bring the war language of modern Christian nationalism into that, it justifies a lot of really, really harmful and violent and disgusting realities <laughs> that, that then come forth when you fully embrace that. Um, in the same way that the, demonization and the Islamophobia that ran has run rapid in this country even before, but especially since 9-11 justifies right. the type of, of injustice that we've perpetuated around the globe on the Muslim community, right? Because it's, it's, if you can make these, these people evil forces of darkness instead of people, then it's a slow slide into to becoming Greg Locke uh, or Fred Phelps or any of these people that Christians would rather say, oh, that's not, that's not us. That's a weird outlier. Um, but really they're taking the logical conclusion of a lot of the theology that I was taught and they're just taking it to its, its, its end, you know, and that's yeah, why and I, I think, think it should be talked about. Well, if, and I, I think that is where I was going next because I think it begs the question, when do you address it and when do you just kind of let it go and say, hey, this Greg Locke is somewhere in Nashville preaching some bullshit and let's just let Greg be Greg and, and move along. 
Um, because I think you see, if you're on Twitter, you see different people have different opinions. Like, hey, let's not quote tweet the white patriarchy all the time, or let's, you know, not platform these people, or maybe, you know, let's not screenshot or I, I know somebody even asked me, are you going to talk about the transformed wife on, on Twitbits this week? And I was like, you know, I blocked her so long ago that I haven't even, I haven't even come across her tweets. And so I think there are ways to engage and there are ways to talk about it. And I'm just curious your thoughts about, um, when to engage and then when people kind of back off. And I know everybody has different thoughts about it. So what do you think? I think, I mean, I think that they're, like you said, everyone's going to have a different perspective. And I think the rule number one, or like the first consideration is like, what's the best thing for you personally? You know, what's the best thing for me when I'm, you know, thinking about engaging within, with any kind of content, uh, I have to think about like, what is this going to do to me <laughs> to invest myself or myself? <laughs> <laughs> all of myself. Are you um, a trinity, Cortland? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, to invest myself in this conversation, right? Uh, because there's a cost associated with that, that sometimes it's best to step back, protect you and your peace and your ability to, you know, provide and give to the relationships in your life and and people do lose themselves in these engagements and these conversations so i think stepping back and going like what do i have the bandwidth to be able to do what can i do without getting lost in it um is an important piece of the conversation and then i think to the end that we were just you know kind of talking about is i think it's important to connect these things with a a practical aspect of culture belief theology um identity that somebody um may not realize is connected to this extremism mm. yeah um i think that's the most beneficial way um to engage with this content is being able to not say not allow people to say like, oh, that's an outlier um, that, you know, we've talked about this before about the the rise and fall of Mars Hill. And my opinion is that, you know, they scapegoated Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill and used it as a way to separate themselves as the, you know, evangelical, you know, uh, mega power force that they are um, to say this is different than us. And I think if we're going to engage with these extreme viewpoints like Greg Locke, like Sean Foyt, like the transforming wife, the, the most beneficial we, thing we can do is connect that extremism to a, an aspect of, of belief, theology, or practice that somebody may have and not realize how harmful that is. Um, yeah, I, well, I have a ahead. couple of thoughts about that because I know, well, the transform wife for me, I blocked her because it was super triggering. If you, if you aren't aware of her, she really just perpetuates a lot of patriarchal ideas and just the whole notion that the very gendered notion that women should be in the house and, and that that should be their fulfillment and their joy and put to the extreme. Right. And so reading her feed, was so triggering for me. I, I would be, be activated when I would read it. And so I was like, like you said, protecting my own peace. But then the other piece of things I think about, 
Oh, that Brian pastor who tweeted out um, like a week ago about women shouldn't be showing skin. And even if they just had a baby, um, they should not be showing photos that were too, you know, and said, oh, yeah. sincerely your brothers. And that tweet yeah, got like, Brian. yeah, got like 20 million <laughs> views. And so it's like, did, did we, you know, give him more traction? But again, there were people that when I, you know, tweeted out and, and had crossed out most of it and said, you know, <laughs> here, I fixed it for you. Um, there were people that came onto my timeline and said, I'm actually really appreciative of his tweet because I think it is important to know that we might cause a man to stumble. And I was like, hold on, <laughs> let's talk about why this is harmful because some people don't understand the implication and how far it can go. And that, that does perpetuate victim blaming and saying that women, you know, because if, you know, they're responsible for a man's actions and things like that. And I, I just think, um, also that's super heteronormative. <laughs> that always makes me cringe when I think about how things are framed like that. So I just want to name that. But, um, there were people that did not know that. And, and I do think it helped to unpack that and unpack that harm. And, and when, um, you know, we had that modest is hottest again, people were like, what's wrong with modesty? And, and I was like, no, it's the messaging here and this is what's harmful and this is what I want to unpack. So I think, you know, it, it, there's something to be said about, there are people that don't quite understand the toxic theology in something. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think that, that it is about trying to find, trying to find that relatable aspect of this extreme thing. If, if we are just posting these things to be enraged and to be shocked and to be, uh, uh, frustrated and to, to, to further, uh, separate each other from a conversation, then they may feel good in the moment. And I've been guilty of that. I've been guilty of just like, you know, I just want to just be enraged about this thing. Um, okay. But same. And I also think that's okay. That's that rage is okay. I mean, I, I mean, I don't know. I think it is okay. I'm not trying, I guess I'm not trying to, 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 to say that it's not okay to, to, to feel angry or to express that. I don't want to police or gatekeep um the way that 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 people engage i'll i'll just talk about myself personally is i have found that just the act of doing that is less fulfilling than if i can use this or engage with this in some way to critique assess or learn or unlearn something um or help somebody else also do that. Um, and the thing that, the, honestly, the thing that comes to mind is the, the Bible story <laughs> about, I think it was Samuel I'm, it's, who comes to, to, to David, right? And tells him that whole story after the Bathsheba thing. And he gets David all like enraged about like this story that he told about the shepherd who took the sheep, even though he had a bunch of sheep. Do you remember that story? I don't know it well enough to retell it on air. 
Yeah, I know. I'm I'm trying to catch up to just after my shock of you having a Bible analogy for all of this. But keep keep going. I'm here for it. But 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 I think you know that 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 scene in the Bible is like David. David's like, who is this guy? Fuck this guy. What an asshole, right? And then and then Samuel goes, Dave, you're that guy. You're the asshole. Like yeah. And I think if we can look at these things and and turn it back towards ourselves and go, how can we stop perpetuating things that are subconscious that, that may lead to this type of, of, of thinking or may lead to this type of, of application that we clearly know is so easily seen as harmful and dysfunctional. And, and I think that that is, uh, that is the work of, at least for me personally, is I am realizing there are aspects of my undergirding, of, of my uh, formation as a person that still needs to unlearn things about my own perspective on supremacy, my own perspective on misogyny, my own perspective on masculinity, and... I want to look at these things and yes, acknowledge that they're terrible and harmful, but also acknowledge that there are still parts of myself that need to be dug up and unlearned and reframed. Um, and so I just feel like there's an aspect of if you have the ability to engage with it without separating it and othering it, that's exactly what these people too often are doing is they're they're othering these audiences of people or these perspectives of people that they disagree with rather than saying, this is a clear example of something that I also have participated in and unknowingly enabled. Uh, and I want to begin to unlearn those things. So, so that's at least for me, but I like, that's again, my perspective. Um, and, and back to the very beginning is if it's like, Hey, I don't have the energy, the emotional capacity, the bandwidth to be able to engage with this content. I'm really learning myself that it's okay to push block. It's okay to push mute, you know? <laughs> yeah. Because and it, Okay. So you're going to have to bring this home for me because I'm going to, you know, that I'm not good with expressions and metaphors sometimes. So in your Bible story, who's the asshole that you're talking about that we're relating to here? Are we the assholes? <laughs> I'm, what I'm saying is that that there is – I wouldn't say that we're the assholes. I would say that that I have definitely been the asshole. <laughs> um, but, but I would say that uh, there are systemic things that we participate in, that I participate as a cis white man, that it's easy for me to use Greg Locke as a punching bag without acknowledging that my cisness, my whiteness, my privilege also engages within society and cultural realities that enable Greg Locke, right? Mm, yeah. And, no, that and makes so sense. there is an aspect of that that I can't just say I'm not responsible for this. If I'm going to throw him out there as an example of a harmful thing, I also have to acknowledge my piece in that hegemony, in that or, supremacy, sure. in that misogyny, um, and go, how do I take steps 
to undo and change these systems that have enabled somebody like Greg Locke and the people who perpetuate his ideas. Yeah, no, that does bring it home for me. And I think um, part of what some of the things that I do on Twitter and I love to create dialogue and I, you know, love to have that conversation and community, but I think about when we talk, I mean, we had that whole episode where we talked about Rachel Joy Welcher and in this past week, there was dialogue with about Sheila, I don't know how to say her last name, Greg, Gregor, Gregor, um, in Gregoire. her book, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> The no Great idea. Sex Rescue, because a lot of people are saying, are you affirming and are you, you know, do you hold this sexual ethic? And people will say, back off of Sheila. What is your deal with Sheila? Why are you obsessed with Sheila? And it's like, in some cases, you have to recognize the overlap between the work that's being published and put out there and platformed and the people that are being harmed. And, you know, and so like Sheila would say, well, you know, my work is just for cis, straight, monogamous women. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm that. And I'm still saying that your work is harming people if it is non-affirming, you know? And so it's it's just part of that dialogue and part of that conversation where our purpose isn't just to kind of single out somebody and say, hey, you know, we're, we want to take this author down. Because no, but if that author is claiming to write about purity culture and perpetuating purity culture, then yeah, we are going to start to unpack the harm in that and, and have dialogue about that. Because there is a, there are people that are like, you know, DMing me like, hey, I, I started reading this book and felt a little uncomfortable. And I'm actually glad that you said something about it because now I'm starting to understand why I felt so uncomfortable with this work and things like that. So yeah, I... I think I do it for not necessarily the author, but for the people that are watching, maybe for the author too. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's complex, right? Like how we separate, you know, uh, just rage tweeting, which I do, uh, from piling on, um, from creating some, some type of productive conversation, it's going to look different in a lot of different ways. And I think, uh, the starting point is not gatekeeping <laughs> and yeah. not trying to tell anyone how to engage, um, but to look at ourselves and go, how am I engaging? And then I think it's great when people share what they've learned about their engagement. I mean, there's yep. people who will get on and say, hey, I'm no longer participating in, you know, this type of, you know, public calling out because I'm taking time to like process through my own shit or whatever. Yep. I think that's a fair place to be. Um, I think anytime that you get on and go like, this person over here is engaging with content incorrectly, um, you're we're getting a little outside of, you know, and I've been that person, <laughs> but I'm getting a little outside at that point of like, I can't, I, I don't know what's going on with that person. And to your point earlier, they may have a very valid reason to be angry. They may be going through some shit. Um, at that point, it's okay for me to just hit block, for me yeah. to hit mute, for me to hit hide and and say, hey, that person's going to figure out whatever they're looking to deal with. Um, but it's complicated. It's complex. And, and I don't think that we've, you know, I don't think there are any great answers or perfect answers for how we engage with each other through these you know, these conflicts on the internet yet. 
um, so much of this way in which we're engaging in community online is really new. Yeah. <laughs> and and we're still figuring out what it looks like. And so I think approaching it with understanding and mutual respect and and trying to think of other words that aren't like grace. <laughs> well, and but, being trauma-informed. I say that a lot, but being trauma-informed I think helps with all of it. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's back to what Isaiah said on the on the podcast a few weeks ago. And he was like, you can acknowledge that somebody's trauma is is the reason why they're mistreating you, but you also don't have to be mistreated. Yep. That's not an excuse. You can say, hey, I don't have, I'm not going to stay within this relationship. I know that it's trauma that's making you act this way, um, but that doesn't mean that you have to put yourself in a place to get traumatized. Um look out for yourself and protect yourself first and foremost. I think that that's, that was good advice. So, um, yeah, cool. well, I think we should get into this interview with Aaron Green. It was so amazing to sit down with them and yeah, I think we should jump into it. Let's do it. Here is our interview conversation with Aaron Green. All right, Megan, how are you? Hey, I am good. How are you? I'm good. We have a guest. Aaron, how are you? I'm excellent. How are you? Oh, man. I'm wow. just excited to be here. Uh, we have such an invigorating start to the podcast every single time. I just, I don't know. We should be. Sometimes I feel like it's too much by... energy. Oh, yeah. I love it. <laughs> I was so elated to be on my favorite time of the, the year, which is recording this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into it because I'm so excited to have Aaron Green here with us. Um, Aaron and I have been um, following each other on Twitter and interacting there. I've been in Clubhouse with you, and I really am excited to share with our listeners the work that you're doing. But before we get into that, I would love for you to give us just a bit of your history in, in this space of evolving faith. Sure. Yeah. How did you get in? Oh, how did I get in? <laughs> oh my gosh. I feel like I was immersed in without my choice. Uh -huh. um, and I there's there's even a dialogue about that in like hermeneutics and stuff, how people just get thrown into a way of belief and there's there's nothing they can do about it until they realize that that's what's happened to them. And then they either, you know, kind of deconstruct it or rebuild or do something different or whatever. So I was immersed into evangelical tradition and belief and thinking and like non-denominational evangelical, if that makes a difference. Yeah. yeah. It's a denomination. Why did I say non-denominational? Like it definitely is a specific like genre of Christianity. Um, yep. So I realized at some point, probably in my, sometime in my youth, <laughs> that I was not straight. And I think that was the critical fracture line for me, where I started to recognize that I was different from everybody else in this religious or, you know, church situation. I wasn't straight. I wasn't interested in boys. Um, in fact, I think I just tweeted about like kissing girls 
when I was eight years old at a church sleepover and this <clears throat> got ratted out and I was grounded for who knows how long. Mm. So started at a young age, you know, and <clears throat> then I get into like adolescence and high school and stuff like that. I get baptized. I don't know why. Um, I think I was just kind of following the situation. I felt like being, being queer was wrong. And so I had this turmoil inside of myself for such a long time. And this division, I had like this straight persona that I felt like I had to live up to. And then I had my secret persona that I was. Yeah. Did you have representations? You talk about, you know, being grounded at eight years old. Did you have representation of like, queer folks who were talked about to you at that age or at your adolescence of like, Oh, Hey, those people have it wrong or are doing that wrong. Or was it just a unspoken sense that like your queerness that you felt at an early age was not accepted? I felt that it was not accepted at all. I grew up in the eighties and nineties. And I know that it's, it's a lot different now for folks in it, which is a blessing. Um, but so I think it was it was a little bit rough because I definitely did not was not aware that someone like me existed, that someone mm. like me was OK um, or that even being gay was OK. I had a so weird. I had this like New Testament Bible. It was called The King and the Beast. <laughs> and it had this okay. like, little intro section to it that talked about like dating and it talked about relationships and friendships and it even talked about homosexuality and all this stuff and then at the end of that you sign this little document that said you know I, I'm gonna accept Jesus into my heart and then it starts like Matthew Mark Luke John whatever um and I signed the little did thing did you get I this I, from like a missionary <laughs> starting the I bible with a contract it. I love it I don't remember where I got it from, like someone in my family or my church or something. And I thought, oh, it to me, it meant so much because no one else would talk about relationships or adolescence or anything like that. The only information I could find out about it from was in that stupid little New Testament Bible. Mm -hmm. So I thought that my whole personhood, my whole identity was wrong and false and like terrible and an abomination. Um, so yeah, in my early twenties, I went on a, like a hardcore alcohol binge drug binge, um, situation because I, I didn't know what else to do. And I was just trying to like feel comfortable in my own skin you know, and feel comfortable. Like I just couldn't reconcile at all my faith with my sexuality. And mm. th that seemed to be the most important thing to me was to reconcile that. So I was willing to like use abuse substances or whatever to like try to numb the pain or like drown out the pain or somehow come to the answer or whatever. But then I <clears throat> was able to come out of that. I knew that that I came out of it like in one piece, luckily, mm. and um, finally accepted my identity and was like, F you, I'm never doing this again. 
Um, or I guess I can say fuck you. Yeah. On this podcast. <laughs> yeah, you can say fuck Here you. Here for it's it. Yep. Okay. <laughs> um, so yeah, I was able to finally just say I have to embrace my identity or this is going to kill me. Like this is literally killing my body. Mm. And um, my parents finally came around after me trying to come out to them several times. And um, I was able to find solace somehow in the Presbyterian USA church until I went and got my degree in biblical studies and then got my MDiv. And I kind of figured out, well, I didn't really need all those church things, actually. I didn't need the PCUSA to tell me I was an acceptable person before God. Um, I think I, I needed at that moment, I needed that stepping stone, but now I know I don't, you know, like in hindsight, I can look back cause I don't go to church anymore. I haven't in several years. Um, even when I was in seminary, I didn't go, but, um, so I feel like I'm on like a break right now from that whole part of my journey. But I have a question where I'm at. just to kind of go back a little bit. Um, and just hearing you talk about that time period where you were trying to numb things and numb the pain. And I, I just think to kind of unpack that a little bit, because what you were numbing, if I'm understanding right, is the idea that who you were inherently was what something that was the messaging that you were getting and, and what you were in the eyes of God is that I'm just trying to unpack, um, yeah, I think I couldn't, I think I believed what I was taught in the evangelical church. Deep down, it was so deeply rooted and foundational. And I had it, I just did not have the ability at that time to like crack open that foundation in the, in healthy ways. Yeah. The only yeah. thing, you know what I mean? And I didn't have the support I didn't have people surrounding me to like help me do that within the context of spirituality or within the context of Christianity. And so I kind of stumbled upon alcohol and drugs in a sense where it made me feel as though I didn't have to have the obligation of like figuring that out. And there's so much pressure put on folks by the evangelical church and by Calvinism in general, by the, those, you know, ways of thinking that your salvation is critical and to be sure of your salvation is critical mm -hmm. at all times. And that's what I <clears throat> kept telling myself and kept thinking. And the only way to kind of drown out the noise of whatever I was taught that was foundational through the evangelical church was I was able to pacify those things through alcohol and drugs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It, it reminds me a lot of Justin Randall, who's a podcaster. He has a podcast, uh, called we were Christian kids. I don't know if you're familiar at all, but, um, he, uh, talks about getting sober. He's sober now at this point, but yeah. talked a lot in one of the episodes that I listened to about how there was almost this like self-fulfilling prophecy because he was always told that there was this gay lifestyle that was associated with this kind of sin of the flesh and drugs and alcohol and, you know, uh, uh, kind of just like being, uh, hedonistic. And he was like, it was almost the self-fulfilling prof prophecy because he was like, then drugs and alcohol became the only way for me to deal with my reality. 
and then bolstered the idea that my flesh was weak and bad and that that was somehow connected also with being gay. And it was like, I'm gay and I'm an addict. And he was ultimately, he's like, I arrived at the, mm -hmm. the conclusion that I was an addict because I was not accepting my identity and my gayness. And you know, that, that was, that was what was perpetuating. And, but as he looked around, he said, I saw it so much. And so it was so easy for evangelicals in his circle to point and say, well, look at all of, you know, all the people in your gay lifestyle are also dancing and doing drugs and drinking and, you know, all of these yes. things that were, you know, earmarks of a sinful lifestyle. Um, and he was like, no wonder we were all doing these things because we were so fucked up from the, the culture that told us we were bad and wrong. And, you know, so I think that that's a common experience for a lot of folks, um, trying to wrestle with that and coming out of that, that evangelical culture. It's definitely, it's definitely the ideology that frames queerness in a, in a sinful light. That is the problem. It's not, it's not that, oh, look at you, because you're queer, then X, Y, Z is going to happen. You're going to go down this dark, treacherous path of alcohol and drug abuse because you're living the lifestyle or whatever. That's not at all how it went down for me anyway. I tried so hard to be straight for the longest damn time. I tried so hard to follow every inch of every rule that I possibly could, you know, every, <clears throat> every iota of like trying to make sure I was correct in my behavior and the way that I thought about things and the way that I prayed about things. And I, tr you know, I tried to do, do all those things. <clears throat> that was what was killing me. You know, and the cherry on top or the nail in the coffin was alcohol and drugs. Mm -hmm. It didn't, you know, it's just the tip of the iceberg. That's not even the whole depth of it at all. And I mm -hmm. think that's what, that's where the church is so wrong in saying, well, look at what this lifestyle, quote unquote, air quotes, whatever, brings you toward. That's not it. Um, it goes far. It, re it reaches far, far deeper than that. So far deep, um, you know, into the depths of like what we talked about earlier is being immersed into this tradition. Mm. And you feel like your whole body is like rooted in that, you know, and that's how that's how hardcore purity culture is. Mm. It's just like <clears throat> embedded into our bodies. Yeah, I'm. Um Curious, um, and maybe we'll get into this, but just hearing you talk about purity culture and, and I'm curious when you were kind of wrestling with all of these things right now, I think there's a lot of, a lot more clarity than there used to be on kind of what is being asked of the LGBTQ community. And, you know, you can have these options of celibacy for life, or, um, you can try to fit into a heterosexual marriage or you're living, you know, you're not living God's plan for you. And then there's all this, you know, side A and side B language and non-affirming and affirming. Did that language exist when you were kind of navigating all of this or was there any of that that was helpful in you, helpful for you and clarifying, okay, this is kind of 
where I line up or what I'm trying to line up as or what, what fits me, um, or, or not. I don't know. So when I came out, I wasn't aware of that language existing and I came out, I did, which about eight years ago, I don't want to say my age on here, but, uh, and at the time I didn't know, (laughs) I mean, I could do, I already talked about the eighties, like people can figure it out. Yeah. It's Um, all right. We we could keep it. I'm in that that range. You know how they give you like a range sometimes on like Uh websites that's what I want to identify as in my age. I just want to give a range. I don't want to give like the exact what. Um, yeah. Anyway. That's like how I am with identifying my orientation. It's like, I'm like somewhere <laughs> exactly. between not straight and really gay. Yeah. I just and want to like right range. Yeah. Give me options. Yeah. Um, so, but I was aware of that language once I went to a conservative <laughs> private Christian university for my undergrad degree. Um, yep. And there were a lot of people at Biola University who identified as side B. And then there was me, the black sheep, who identified clearly as side A. And I think it's, even though I didn't necessarily have the language at the time when I was coming out for that, I think there was a sense of like, okay, well, I can just not have sex (laughs) for me at some point. Mm-hmm. And then realizing it never, ever says in the text, in the biblical text, that anybody is mandated toward celibacy for any reason whatsoever. Yeah, It is explicitly a calling. And it's a, it's a spiritual calling that someone has. Um, and I mean, even if we get down to the, you know, if you're just going based off of what Jesus said in the Gospels, Jesus never mandates this, Mm -hmm. Um, never mandates celibacy. So this is something clearly made up within church tradition Mm -hmm. Um, and stemming. It stems from that early uh, New Testament theology in general about the celibacy of Jesus and Paul or the alleged celibacy of Jesus and Paul. Mm, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I realized that celibacy might be a helpful stepping stone for some people, but what I have seen it do in the past is lead people down a similar path that I went through sometimes and I've also seen people never, like, it, it, it remains as a stepping stone. Mm. So even though there will exist, you know, be in existence a side B community, it exists as a stepping stone mainly for the people just passing through it, um, mm. whether it takes them a year or 10 years or 20 years to realize, you know, that that this is ultimately a call. because. <clears throat> Sure, like we can force our bodies to do certain things, um, but I I do believe wholeheartedly that it it's very difficult to do that to ourselves, and it's harmful to do that to ourselves. We shouldn't do that to ourselves. Um, so I I I'm a lot of my friends who identify as side B have come come to the side A position. Yeah. So I'm hopeful that it's it's like a passing through kind of point. But it, I also recognize the dangers of identifying 
with mandated celibacy as an option. It also, yeah. It also really, the whole argument really bolsters and holds up a really heteronormative view of penetrative sex as sex, you know, to begin with, because like when we talk about orientation, we talk about queerness and we talk about people on the A spectrum and we talk about people who express their sexuality in various different ways that don't line up with heteronormative standards of penetrative sex, then it makes the whole conversation irrelevant, <laughs> you know, the, the, uh, about waiting for what, what specific sexual act are we excluding here uh, if we're going to mandate celibacy when even just the way in which people interact with their sexuality is a really wide, broad spectrum. Um, yeah. It, it doesn't even make sense when you start talking about it that way. You're absolutely right. That's another, that's definitely another component of it that I think would be really hard for folks in the side B camp to speak to, you know? Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and in addition to that, like, I've heard a lot of arguments that, you know, well, Jesus is clearly um, talking about heterosexual marriage and every form of that thereof in Matthew 19, when he talks about divorce. But what actually is happening there is women never had the power of divorce in the ancient, in ancient, in antiquity. They didn't have that power. Only men had the power to do that with their wives. And Jesus is critiquing the power dynamic of men abusing their power over women. He's not critiquing sex. He's not critiquing gender or queerness or sexuality or anything like that. He's specifically like dismantling a system mm. in place and saying this system has, has failed. You mm. are failing in abusing it and you're hurting other people, women specifically, you know, in those marriages, but never once, I mean, is, is being queer condemned or being LGBTQ or, you know, any, <clears throat> anything about sexuality in that context in that verse at all. So it's quite interesting that that's like the one thing that side B folks will like hang their hats on is that mm. <clears throat> particular part of Matthew 19. There's yeah. really no standing for it at all. I'm, I'm wondering about, and Megan, if you have something too, but you talk about, you know, being out and going to Biola going, you know, starting your education at that institution, being out, what was your expectation? And, you know, what was it like in terms of, of starting? And Megan, if you have something to add. Yeah, there. just to tag on to that, um, because my question was very similar. Um, I am curious to hear how important it was for you to make sure that it all fit um, in within your spirituality within whatever faith tenets that you still wanted to hold on to um, as you navigated that process? Good. Those are both really good questions. So I'll answer Cortland's first, because I think that kind of segues into Megan's. Um, but so at the time when I went to Biola, I was out and affirming, but I wanted a degree in biblical studies. And unfortunately, the only places that hand those out are conservative private Christian universities across the U.S., right? Mm. So I decided that, and I, and I want to add the caveat that I didn't want to major in religious studies. I wanted to major in biblical studies. And part of the reason was, was because I wanted to undo 
and I wanted to flip the script in a lot of ways. The, the things that were taught to me um, about being queer and about being Christian and or identifying with religion or having some kind of faith orientation or whatever. Um, and I knew that, so I'd have to sacrifice some parts of what I now newly believe in order to get this credential degree from XYZ University. But I went to Biola with the promise to myself that I would go to a private Christian university that already had a queer underground movement on its campus. And Biola had one of the biggest ones in California. So I said, I'm going to go to Biola because they already have a queer underground movement. And I'm so excited to be in that community. The side, it was a side A community. And um, so I get there, meet with the leaders of the group. And they're like, oh, we're actually moving. And we need someone new to take over this group. And I'm like, shit. Um, they asked me to do it. And I had no idea what I was doing, like as far as activism or organizing, community organizing or anything like that. I was just like, what the hell? Um, here I am, like, just trying to get my degree and like, you know, whatever. Now I have to lead a people. Um, yeah, welcome. You're in charge now. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> so they're like, you're just the right person. I'm like, God, okay, fine. Um, so I did it. And so to answer your question, Megan, I didn't have high hopes for Biola. <laughs> and that's probably one of the reasons why I transferred to Azusa Pacific a year later. Um, which was slightly better, although still very conservative when it comes to its policies about queer and trans folks on campus. But their theology department is wildly um, forward-moving and innovative and affirming. And um, I'm very excited that I was able to go there and leave Biola because Biola was terrible. <laughs> I, was um, I got there and I was taking these classes and they're so they're like the way they would assign books, they would only mostly assign other Biola professors books. So mm. it's so internalized. You yeah. know, it was like don't read anything outside the walls of Biola, yeah. you know, like ever. <laughs> Just read all the professors' works, like, and pay for them while you're here. And, you know, so that's yeah. kind of how my whole trajectory changed with activism, at least. But, yeah, Megan, I, I was like, I was the person in class that my professors just dreaded when I showed up. Because I was always raising my hand. I was always like, hey, wait a minute. No, this is terrible theology. You know, it was just, I, I was the person that they were like, this is a problem. Aaron is a problem. Mm. And uh, <laughs> and my grades started to change. And I had, you know, I knew it. So I had a 4.0 when I went there. And they started, my grades just started to slip. And I was like, mm. these professors are out for me. They yeah. want me out of here. They hate it. You know, they hated it. So what, what is it like being in a context that, because I, I feel like a lot of the folks who I have talked to from, you know, universities from APU to Liberty to Biola, to, I mean, just like all of these universities do have this somewhat 
you know, kind of paradox and this, this like tension or this conflict that's happening between some very progressive theological, you know, professors or minds or people within the educational institute and these institutions that are very much, I mean, from my perspective, at least dominated by donors and partner ministries. And, and so there is a really weird, I mean, what is it like to have a professor who is maybe supportive or can like is even you know aligned with you value wise, but then be within this institution that doesn't align with you value wise? It's got to be very disorienting and frustrating. It's hard. I mean, it's I mean, at first you think, God, oh, this is wonderful. Finally, a professor who gets it, you know, a professor who's affirming and loving and and also is, is an expert in their field. You know, th that combination can be a really powerful one. Um, but yes, when you're in that environment, you also have like when, when I was trying to organize students and organize around removing a certain policy at, at Azusa Pacific, for instance, the professors would straight up tell me, Aaron, like I can't do anything publicly because I'll lose my job and I'll, I have a mortgage to pay, you know? And it's as an activist, I'm thinking like, you don't like, do you understand what I'm losing? Do you yeah. understand what queer people are losing? They're losing their lives. And you're mm -hmm. talking to me about your rent, you know, your mortgage or whatever. I get it. I get it. I do. But in those instances, just as it gets my activist heart pumping um, because it's like, this is why activism is so hard because of the institution because of the system and capitalism is something that clearly influenced, you know, that way of thinking and stuff. So it, just imagine how the world would be different if people could actually work in a working environment aligned with their values <laughs> and their beliefs for God's sake, you know? Yeah. Um, but clearly that's not happening at a private Christian institution anyway, not, not the ones I went to, mm. but, um, it's, it's pretty wild. It is disorienting. That's a good, that's a good word for it. Mm. Yeah. And, and the other question I think that I have, cause I want to get into the reap, you know, uh, project and, you know, we, uh, I had, uh, Luke Wilson, on the podcast okay, okay, last cool. season and I love Luke so much. Um, and he talked a little bit about, uh, that project. Um, but I also, before you get into that, I'm, I'm wondering as somebody who I live a few blocks away from CCU, Colorado Christian university, when I drive by CCU, I know CCU is one of the schools, a part of the reap project, um, and I drive by other, there all the time and I wonder how, how can I, how could I best support queer students at CCU? Because I know that there probably are, you know, groups, organizing groups that are doing some kind of work. Is there ways for people? I mean, if I'm an evangelical Christian wanting to influence what's happening at DU, I get involved in crew, I get involved in, you know, I go support somebody with varsity or whatever, right? Um, as somebody wanting to advocate for the queer community, are there organizations, are there grassroots ways to get involved with supporting queer students at private Christian universities? And maybe that's a great lead into REAP and what it's doing, and maybe there's some connected 
um, organizations there? Yes. So yes, the answer is yes. And it's REAP. It's through REAP. Awesome. Okay, cool. (laughs) Fantastic. (laughs) Because we happen to be one of the only, I mean, the only organization doing what it's doing in community organizing with queer and trans students on private Christian campuses. So, and the the only reason why I know that (laughs) is because the last organization that I worked for, which didn't really, I mean, we weren't as successful as we hoped for it to be, was Brave Commons. And that was sort of the entity that people would come to, that queer and trans students would come to um, if something were going down on their campus. And it just, you know, because of lack of funding, we weren't able to sustain Brave Commons. But um, there's still a grassroots following, I think, because this is a grassroots movement in general. So yes, LGBTQ students exist in these spaces at private Christian universities, and they do need help as you could imagine, because my situation is vastly different than the average person who's getting, you know, coming into this space. Um, and one of the biggest questions I get asked all the time is why on earth are queer students, queer and trans students at a Christian university in the first place? And if it's so bad, why don't they just leave? Getting over that public education hurdle of like explaining to people the answer to that question is like the biggest hurdle to get people on board with what we're doing. Um, Yeah. But uh, yeah, so the the best answer, the biggest answer is that people don't discover that they're queer trans until they're in college. You know, they're there. They're they're in that age frame. You know, between like seventeen and twenty four. And then they're stuck. Their family's not affirming. Their friends aren't affirming. Their teachers aren't. Their pastors aren't. You know, so they're kind of screwed. And then another piece of that is, is, and we talked about this earlier, is that if you're immersed into a tradition from birth um, and you're 17, 18, 19, 20 years old, you're probably not financially independent of your family. And they're willing to pay for maybe the only school they're willing to pay for is the one of their choice or the college that their family went to, like Samford University or Liberty University or Viola Mm. University. And that's the one they're going to pay for. And they're going to pay your meals and housing and all that stuff. Um, Then the third component of that is, well, just transfer. That's so bad. Well, again, financial independence between those age ranges is like, really hard to attain to. Um, and then you're asking someone to, to basically financially uproot themselves logistically in all those ways. It's just not a, like, is that the kind of question we should be asking? You know? Um, but people do, and here I am to answer it <laughs> for yeah. everyone. No, you are right that it's a, it's a bad, it's the wrong question. But it is, I mean, it is the question that I think people do well, you know, if you agree to go to the school and you agree to, you know, live by this, you know, honor code or or whatever it might be, but I I think that that totally ignores I think a significant amount of the actual discrimination and abuse and and things that these students face that don't even involve them doing anything explicitly against any type of honor code. I mean, like yeah, you know, you're so it, right. It, it really puts when when somebody's identity or affiliation with some identity is is 
explicitly against school policy, um, we're not even talking about behavior at that point. We're talking about making these students a target for discrimination from the get. Right. Well, and I would love to hear you talk about, because a lot of these colleges have applied for exemption for discrimination. Is that, am I understanding that correctly? Yes, you are. Absolutely. I would love to hear you just kind of talk about that for a little while because I was not aware of how all that worked. Um, and and then as websites like Church Clarity have emerged to kind of show what churches are affirming and non-affirming, I've reached out to ask about certain colleges or Christian colleges and kind of what their stances are. And it was somebody else that kind of pointed to me, oh, well, this is one of the colleges that applied for this exemption. And that is kind of how people sometimes can know which ones are the ones that are kind of actively looking for ways to perpetuate this discrimination in a legal way. And allow them to continue to collect a bunch of taxpayer money. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, yes, y'all are absolutely right. So they're, they're Title IX exempt, um, exempt from following the rules and regulations of Title IX, which was created in 1972. And they're also taxpayer funded and they're tax exempt too. Like all kinds of horrible stuff happening. Um, so basically what happens is like if you were a straight person and um, something awful happened, like a sexual assault on campus, you would be able to file a Title IX complaint with your Title IX, Title IX coordinator as you should be able to um, or, you know, do go through a procedure that anybody should and could for their safety and their protection. For the queer trans student, however, as soon as they file a Title IX complaint, what that school can do is petition the Office of Civil Rights and ask for an exemption just because a, file, a Title IX complaint was filed. And wow. they can get that exemption. So in some ways, like there are not even in some ways, there are no protections at all for a queer or trans person, especially through Title IX, because the, the Department of Education will like hands out these exemptions, which is wild. So, yeah, and the other component of it is ta these are taxpayer funded schools and they're tax exempt. Um, so they're federally funded, taxpayer funded, and exempt. And that's where our taxpayer dollars are going. So it should be on the forefront, I would think, of people's minds. Of like, hey, do I want my taxpayer dollars going to this institution that doesn't give a lick about its queer or trans students at all? In fact, like when they do try to seek out their protections, they're filing for a Title IX exemption, which like basically takes away that student's ability to protect itself. Um, there are other ways that a student could potentially protect themselves, but they. what's terrible in this scenario is that they don't have, the queer or trans student doesn't have nearly the same options or opportunities as a straight person would have, as their you know, heterosexual peers would have. And that's incredibly dangerous. You know, we're setting a precedent and we're setting a standard for a lot of dangerous things to happen to this to these students. And they they have no way of, of protecting themselves. So that's what REAP is for. 
And that's, um, we, I was just going to get to that. Tell us, <laughs> uh, tell us what REAP is doing. Yeah. So REAP um, has a works through uh, litigation and um, through student organizing, documentary, film, oral history, research and public policy, trying to do every, th- every single thing that we can to protect these students on these campuses. Because we know that the options are widely unavailable and limited to these folks. And like, you know, Corlin, we were, we were just talking about what a hurdle it is just to go through that public education piece with folks. It's so difficult to even just inform the public of like, hey, this is why you should care about this topic because your money is going here and this is what's happening to these people and here's why they're still there in that space. So it's quite a, like, <laughs> it's a difficult, like, kind of activism. It's very niche and, and, but we're here doing it. We're doing the thing. Yeah. And it's in, in, in addressing, you know, discrimination in Christian uh, private education has been something that has gone back years and years and years addressing racial discrimination, uh, uh, addressing, you know, universities, private Christian universities that had interracial dating policies until not very long ago. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing when you start to see how much the, a lot of this institutional, uh, uh, system that, that is in place and being used to discriminate against queer and trans students is, really a byproduct of the fact that it's been set up from the beginning Christian education as a way to keep these universities white to keep now these universities straight to keep these universities you know in this certain way that discriminates against a lot of other people and i think when people start to see that history too um it becomes even more apparent how this is baked into the way these institutions have been operating for a long time. And I don't really care what your theological perspective is. I think that there's still an argument to be made. I mean, I do care, but (laughs) even if you have a really bad theological take on human sexual ethic, there's still a case to be made that you should give a shit about this. This is really important when it comes to the, the health and safety and well-being of students of, of, human beings. Anyway, get off my soapbox. That should be your soapbox anyway. Uh, but yeah, I do have a question and, but I, if, if you had a response to what Corlin no, said, go for it. Please, No, please ask, ask away. Yeah. I, well, I guess it's not lost on me that you're doing this work and this work impacts you deeply. And I see this on Twitter. I see this, that it's, you know, the community disability community advocates fiercely against ableism. It's the queer community that's advocating against, you know, the, the harm towards the queer community. It's, it's, you know, and and I just wonder because I see you doing this work and it, and you respond to things on Twitter, you, you know, and you say, this is literally killing people and hearing you talk about your story. It was something that literally impacted you in that way. And I, I would love for you to talk a little bit about, what that is like and how you navigate that doing this work, but also doing work, activism work that impacts you in a deep way as well. And is so personal to you. Unfortunately, Facebook 
tells me the memories of my activism for me. Mm. And I cringe a lot mm. because I still, I, I was such a baby. Like, okay, I've, I've definitely grown a lot in the way that I use my platforms and, and do activism, especially through social media. But I'm very careful now on Twitter. And I respond to certain things I think that I believe in the way I work about activism is there's a time and a place for everything. Um, There's an appropriate time to respond and there's inappropriate times to respond to things. So I'm, I'm very careful about the ways and things that I respond to, especially on Twitter, um, just because you can get an endless cycles of nothingness with people on Twitter. Um, But there are other times when it's like, this is a meaningful conversation because this person has a platform and so do I. And what we both have to say is going to have impact on people's lives. And in that case, it's really important, you know, to really consider the kinds of words that we use and the ways that we say things. So I think I've just grown a lot in general with my activism, but sure. Yes. Like because I've experienced it, firsthand that definitely (laughs) makes the passion inside myself all that more um vigorous you know and and it's it's serious to me I take this very seriously because people really do die because they're not affirmed and and I know there's, I mean, I would think, God, that there's no, nobody that wants that on their hands, you know. But so that's kind of how I roll with my activism. And I've, ch- I've switched it up over time. There's times when I don't want to be active at all on Twitter. There's times when I just want to be silent and listen, you know, because I have a lot to learn from other people, too. And that's how I view it is um, I'm constantly learning, constantly growing. but. Yeah. So anyway, that's that's kind of how I feel about at least the social media part of it. Yeah. What what was I think, you know, I'd be curious, you know, what what was what would you say to somebody who is going through this that is kind of like where you were at at Biola at APU and who maybe is listening to this episode and beyond, you know, obviously reach out and figure out what REAP is doing and how you can maybe get involved and what resources they may have for you. But what was it that gave you kind of hope to get through um, those experiences and, and you know, kind of get to the other side of it uh, when you were experiencing those types of situations on, on campus? Yeah, so the answer to that for me was community finding other people like me in that space. Once I knew they were there, I knew that we had something going on and that it was really important. Like the first time we did a direct action demonstration on Biola's campus, I was scared to death. I had never done anything like that before. And I thought, oh my God, I'm about to march through the school with a huge banner that's got rainbow fonts on it. And I'm just like, what am I doing? the news was there, like all kinds of things were happening. And I was scared. But I was like, look at all these people with me who showed up to this protest and who showed up to be here and like, you know, wanted to be a part of this movement that we're doing. And I knew we had power 
because the one of the um, administrative workers, the public relations person, I forget her official title, but we had many meetings. She came down out, out of her tower to come talk to me at this demonstration. And she was shake. Her voice was shaking. She was so scared of what we were doing. And that's when I knew that what we're doing is powerful. Hmm. I thought if, if we're shake, if this woman is so scared of just like a couple of queers, you know, <laughs> like waiting for a chapel to get out with a bunch of banners, like we've got power and we need to use it. So yeah. community, like find your people. And if you need help finding people, Reap can help you find people. And um, oftentimes there's already a group established, whether it's overground or underground, but we are happy to help make connections for folks and with folks if they need help doing that. But that's, that's critical. You have to have friends while mm. you're there. Mm. I love that. That's so good. Yeah. That is so good. Well, we're getting towards the end. Uh, I want to to have you speak to exactly how um, the best ways to find both you and the work that you're doing, uh, as well as the work that Reap's doing, and how can folks who want to get involved, whether as students, as you know, LGBTQ folks, or as allies um, in the work that you're doing. Um, what are tangible ways, you know, can we, you know, are, are you guys 501c3? Can I, you know, can I take all that money I used to give to InterVarsity? Can I just go around collecting InterVarsity money? And I just tweeted and, that out that I just canceled my InterVarsity donation. So, hey, oh, nice. let's just move right over to Reap. Let's move it over. Yeah. yeah. What are ways that, that we can resource and help what, what you're doing? So we are fiscally sponsored by SoulForce, which is another kick-ass organization that does of the same iterations and, and especially in the past of the work that we do. Um, but so yes, we are under their 501c3 umbrella. You can donate at www.thereap.org and there's a ton of resources on there. Um, you can also get a hold of me um, if you need to on the website. My email address is on the <laughs> about us page. There's resources and things you can do like sign up for our newsletter, follow us on all the socials, Reap underscore LGBTQ. Recirculating our stories is really important. Helping the public get educated about what we're doing. Like when we were talking about why queer and trans students are at Christian colleges, just helping educate other folks around you or in your circles is super helpful um, to get people on board with the movement. My socials are all over the place, but if you want to find me on Twitter, it's at Erin Greenbean. And then I can't even remember what my <laughs> handle is on Instagram, but I'm on we'll Instagram. Put, we'll find yeah. you. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, I think it's underscore running errands underscore, which is terrible. So it's yeah. So I love it. I love a unique social handle. I'm all I'm all for. Well, it. and I tried to use the running errands one on Twitter, but it was already taken. So I was like, oh man. Yeah. Yeah. You and you, but you've done a little bit of writing in this space, right? Am I? I've done writing. Yeah. I do have a website, erinrgreen.com, <laughs> and I've done. I do a lot of work, especially around exegesis and hermeneutics, um, and unlearning the ways that the church has taught us to read the biblical text. 
that is what my, besides the activism work that I do, that is what my field of expertise is in. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's I what that. I like to focus on in writing. Yeah. 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 And we could do a whole podcast. You addressed a little bit of that, but we could do a whole other interview on yes. all of that. I love um, that stuff. Yeah, for sure. I, me too. I let's nerd out about the Bible. I'm, I'm anytime that, that, cause I, I identify and introduce myself as an atheist to everyone I meet. And then they're like, you like the Bible way too much. As an atheist. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. More than I do. Yeah. 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 More than my Christian counterparts most of the time. How but funny. Uh, I love that. I find it, I find it interesting when we, when I talk about the Bible with people who are not religious at all, um, from my perspective, I oftentimes find them to be very interested. Um, it's quite like, fascinating, actually. Those yeah. are sometimes the best folks to talk to because it's just this fresh whole world and perspective on the text, um, especially in, under that lens of atheism and agnosticism. Um, but yeah, anyway, I, I could go on and on, but I won't. Yeah, we'll, we'll save it for the that. next time that you come onto the pod. We'll we'll do a Bible episode maybe. At some All point. right, that sounds good. Cool. Well, this was really great, Aaron. Thank you so much for coming on and just sharing your wisdom with us. This was lovely. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate you. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I echo that as well. I'm really excited to release this one. Yay! Yay! All right. All right. We'll keep... We'll keep our wrap up short this week since uh, we went for 30 minutes on the front, front half of the, the podcast. But uh, we landed. That's the great thing about these conversations. I like it. They kind of they they come around full circle and then you, we bring it home. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And hopefully it was a good uh, lead into that conversation. And hopefully folks who... Uh, are listening, uh, are going to check out Reap and the work that they're doing. Um, check out Aaron's work uh, across the web, uh, you know, pop into the show notes and find the social follows and the other links that we have in there uh, for Aaron and for Reap and, and what they're doing. I drove by CCU, which is right by my house several times this last couple of weeks since recording that interview. Um, and every time I thought, I need to, I need to, get on and, and figure out how uh, I can help support the queer students at that college because it's right here. It's right in my backyard. I, I, I'd like to be a part of helping to support the kids who I know are there and going through stuff. Yeah. And I, if I'm remembering right, you had an episode with Luke Wilson um, from the first season before I came on as co-host who was also involved with REAP, correct? Yes. Yep. Yep. He yep. is part of the one of the defendants in the in the lawsuit, um, or one of the people. I don't know if that's the correct word. One of the people who have signed on to that lawsuit um, uh, that they are bringing to, I believe, the uh, Department of Education or whoever is control of giving those tax exemptions. Yep. Um, and basically saying like, "Hey, we 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 don't want our federal money <laughs> going to schools to support." Uh, discrimination uh, yeah. that shouldn't be how this works um, in the same oh, yeah. way that, that that there was lawsuits towards schools that were perpetuating racial segregation uh, under a tax exempt. I think this is very much the same thing and, and important work um, to, to be done. So Megan, where can people find us around the web? 
Yeah. So the podcast is on Twitter and Instagram, Instagram at thereafter podcast and Twitter at thereafter pod. And then you can look for me at the pursuing life on both of those. Portland, where can we find you? Portland coffee, uh, across wherever you are engaging socially, but Twitter, uh, if you want to actually interact, because that's where I am most of the time. Uh, so yeah, you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Which is a direct correlation with, uh, becoming friends, uh, with Megan, who has made me addicted to Twitter. (laughs) It's my specialty. It's my specialty. Well, I think that's a wrap. All right. Until next time, we will see you guys next week. All righty.